Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I am Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and this week we are very excited to share a conversation that Cam and I recently had with one of the best golfers in the world. According to World Golf Ranking, he's at number six. That's Patrick Cantley, now a two-time PGA Tour winner, member of the Winning Presidents Cup team from a few weeks ago, and before that had one of the most prolific amateur careers in golf history, where he won pretty much every award possible and was ranked number one in Wagger for 55 straight weeks before turning pro. Obviously, we're excited and extremely thankful that Patrick took some time out of his prep while in Hawaii getting ready to start the season to get on a call with us. We think it's always inspiring to be able to share the origin story of players that have reached the top of the mountain. And Patrick does a really good job sharing those pivotal moments and influences in his early rise. Uh, He also provides some really good insights on how he's attacking each week now on the PGA Tour. The thing that stands out about Patrick is his consistency, not only his winning play, but week in and week out, ever since missing uh, some time from injury, being back for two and a half years now, he's only missed three cuts. So we really tried to dig into figuring out the contributing factors and limiting that week-to-week variability and how does he train each week, how is he prepping for each tournament, along with examining some uh, mindset factors that, you know, while he's on the golf course and would contribute to some of that consistency and high performance. And it's clear from this conversation that Patrick is not only one of the best golfers in the world, but he's also a really thoughtful guy who's figured out some things that have allowed him to earn an edge And he's very open and generous uh, about sharing those things with us in this conversation and hopes that it helps you pick up a few things that may serve you on your journey. So please enjoy episode 55 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Patrick Cantley. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for joining us while uh, while you're in Hawaii and prep mode for the Century and, and Sony. And importantly, congrats on the President's Cup. Thanks very much, Cameron and Corey. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to do it. And um, yeah, here in Hawaii, it's beautiful. We had a nice time in Australia. So, Can you real quick describe to us and our listeners the feeling you get playing for uh, your country for this the third time, the first two being the Walker Cup and the Palmer Cup? Yeah, I'd say uh, Palmer Cup and Walker Cup were very different. Walker Cup was uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more people, a lot more excitement, a lot more pressure than Palmer Cup. And Walker Cup was very exciting. Um, we played up at Royal Aberdeen, which was a great golf course up on the northeastern coast of uh, Scotland. And I had a great time. It was uh, unfortunate. We had a really, really good team, a uh, U.S. team, but we ended up losing. We played some practice rounds and the weather was pretty good. And then the Walker Cup's actually only two days, so it's 36 holes Saturday and Sunday, and it blew 40 uh, both days and then rained and did a bunch of crazy stuff, and we ended up losing by a, maybe a point or two, which was kind of a bummer, but it was a great experience. How did playing in the Walker Cup and Palmer Cup prepare you for what you faced uh, down at Royal Melbourne just a few weeks back? Well, I'd say the biggest thing is uh, growing up, I, I never played alternate shot. I'd play best ball matches, obviously, with some friends at home. And I think a bunch of American American kids growing up um, are used to playing best ball. It's a, it's a fun game with four guys or even five guys uh, at home. But nobody ever plays alternate shots. So it's, a different, uh, it's a definitely a different format and a different mental space to be in. And so nothing can prepare you for that except for doing it. And doing it under the gun is a lot different than doing it for fun. 
So uh, I think that was the best prep. I played my matches with Chris Williams that week, and we went um, we went one and one. So uh, that was probably the best alternate shot prep you could get. Right, right. I hope my fellow Australians treated you with respect and uh, you enjoyed representing the USA in in my hometown. Yeah, they did. They were as expected. You know, it felt like we were playing an away game, which was good, especially on that uh, 36 whole day in the afternoon when they got a few drinks in them. They were a little <laughs> boisterous, uh, but that that that's part of the fun as far as I'm concerned. Certain, you know, part of the fun of, of those big events are that wherever you're playing in, the home crowd is really pulling for their home team. And I think that's what makes those events so great. So, yeah, yeah they were fantastic and they're trying to pull their guys along. Um, unfortunately for them, it just it just wasn't enough. We were too much for them on the on the weekend. Right on. And there are many things that I miss because I don't get home all that often. Um, and I Aside from the great golf that was played, and I watched the entirety of it, I wanted to know your highlights from uh, from Australia, and I'll give you three options. Uh, number one being, uh, was Aussie Beal your highlight? Number two being the meat pies. Hopefully you got a chance to sample a meat pie. And number three, ingesting all the flies that were probably surrounding you when you were playing. Uh, what was number one? What was my first option? Uh, Aussie beer. Oh, Aussie beer. I didn't have any Aussie beer, which is probably a sin. <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> But I had a meat pie. Fantastic. I actually requested more meat pies one day, but they somehow never, never showed back up in our team room, which I was kind of bummed about. And so I'd say, I'd say meat pies are probably number one, the flies, they're real. Um, (laughs) it was, it was funny. Like I was driving to the golf course every day and it's like a 45 minute drive from where we were staying. And it kind of reminds me a lot of Southern California where I grew up. And so I felt like at home and I was like, man, this is, this is a really beautiful place. You know, I, I like the people. I like the place. I like, you know, it reminds me of home. I could maybe live here. And then I got out on the golf course and the flies were relentless. And I was like, nope, can't live here. Yeah, <laughs> Too many flies. This. I don't know what percentage yeah. of our audience knows what a meat pie is. I have no idea what a meat pie is. It's a paste. Uh, it's a pastry, uh, probably twice the size of what you would consider a chicken pot pie, and it's filled with minced meat and what you might consider kind of like a a dark gravy. That's delicious. Absolutely delicious. Yeah, it's 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 a staple diet when you go in to watch Aussie rules football or rugby. Gotcha. Yeah, meat pies and beer. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Patrick, as a starting point into kind of telling your story a little bit, I'd love to get an idea for what your early involvement in golf looked like. We had your coach Jamie Mulligan on a previous episode, and he described what sounded like a really unique learning environment at Virginia Country Club in Long Beach, where there was a pretty tight knit of of a group of high performers with you as one of the younger members of that group. And I'd love to hear what your perspective on that experience and kind of how it contributed towards your development early on. Yeah, I'd say, well, I started, I started playing tournaments when I was nine and um, there's so many junior golfers and so many good junior golfers where I was, I grew up kind of near Long Beach uh, in a, a city called Los Alamitos in Southern California there are so many good golfers around there that um, the tournaments are highly competitive uh, from a very young age. And so I remember going to like my first tournament. I was nine years old. It was at this golf course called Yorba Linda Country Club, which is a pretty good course. I have some friends that uh, grew up there and are members there still. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what I shot, but I probably shot in the very high 40s from the ferry up tees <laughs> or maybe even in the 50s. 
from the ferry up tees and the greens were fast, uh, faster than what, you know, I was used to even at nine years old. And I think I like four or five putted the last hole for triple or quadruple. My grandpa had brought me to the tournament and, and I walked off the green and I was obviously particularly upset. And he goes, you can't four putt the last hole <laughs> of, any, of, of any tournament, you know, and it was just nine holes, but it felt like the masters to me. But yeah, I mean, there's so many good opportunities to learn playing competitive golf that, you know, I, I really enjoyed every time I got to tee it up with those guys. And it was a challenge for the first, you know, three or four years because I felt like I was actually behind everybody. I, I didn't hit it as far and my short game wasn't as good. And, you know, it really kind of motivated me to go out and practice. And then after junior golf, I would say my next phase was really high school golf. And that's where I started playing a lot better relative to people my age. And Jamie was a big part of that. I started taking lessons from him when I was 11. In high school, we played a lot of competitive competitive matches. We'd play like 29-hole matches every year from like February to maybe May. And uh, I really learned a lot about posting a score just in those little nine-hole high school matches. And I got a lot better felt every week of the high school season because there were three days a week where you had to go out and you know, it was just nine holes, but you had to go out and really post a score and it was meaningful. So that's when I really started to get a lot better. Were there any other sporting pursuits during that like nine, 10, 11 years old? Because that's a question that we get a lot from parents is kind of one, we want to develop well-rounded athletes, but when are we supposed to specialize in golf once we've decided that, you know, of their own volition, that there's a real passion and desire to do that? Right. Yeah. I played basketball and baseball until I got to high school and I really enjoyed basketball and baseball, probably more so even than golf, because I liked when I was that age, having the team, like the team format, like being around a team, you know, it was more fun to go to baseball practice with my friends than it was to go to the range and hit balls by myself. And so that was, I'd say that was really the one thing that maybe stopped me from playing as good as I could earlier. But probably what ended up making me fall in love with it more when I got to high school because I wasn't burnt out and I felt like I was just hitting my stride and I felt like I wanted to be at the golf course all day on the weekends and in the summer, opposed to feeling like I had already done that for a number of years. So I really enjoyed basketball and baseball probably a lot more until high school just because of, you know, how, com- how much, how much more competitive it was and, and being with those teammates. So. I encourage anybody that has a junior golfer to have them play whatever sports have them, you know, enables them to have a great time just competing and having fun with their friends because there's there's plenty of time to get good at golf. Mate, was there a round or an event that was like particularly, does it stand out in your mind as confirming that your skills were better than most, um, if not all that you were playing against? And the reason I, I bring this up is I remember coaching Jordan when he was 12 and he got to his 13th year. And the first AJGA event he played in was uh, just west of Dallas-Fort Worth here, and he played against JT, and he surprised himself in beating the entire field. Did you have that a similar experience where you kind of leveled up and you're like, oh my gosh, I am this good? I would say mine was, mine was a pretty slow burn, a slow progression. Mm-hmm. I think the first, you know, I played maybe a, I remember for sure when I was 12 or 13 playing a, like a, 
an AJGA, like, I don't know what they used to call them. Like, uh, it was the, when you had never played one before, it was like a pre, yeah, pre it was like, if you had never, yeah, it was like, if you had never played an AJGA before you were able to play in one of these like debut events or something. And I remember it was in California and I went up and played and I, I think I shot like 80, 83, like 88 or something when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were kids that were shooting under par kids that I ended up playing against in high school and, and, and college like, uh, Jeffrey Kang. Mm -hmm. And, um, then about two years later, I played my first open event and like the first regular AJGA event when I was maybe the summer after my freshman year of high school and I finished fourth. So I, I had a big, I remember thinking to myself after finishing fourth in that first AJJ event that I really played, um, after, you know, a couple years ago, finishing almost close to last that I'd come a long way in a couple of years. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, and my progression it was never really felt like an aha moment, but really like, uh, like a slow progression from, from, uh, every, every year I felt like I was getting better. And if you had to connect the dots looking backwards now to that 18 months to two year period between that debut AJGA to the one that you finished fourth with, what would you point your finger at and tell the audience were the difference makers that allowed you to grow your skills rapidly as you did to um, change that performance? Well, I, I got a lot bigger even between 12, 12 and 14 and just hitting it farther. I was still not very big. When I was 14, I was probably maybe 125 pounds or something. I was still really, really small, but I was a lot bigger than I was. And so I hit it farther. And then also, uh, like I said, uh, for me, at least the high school matches where I was able to play after that freshman year of high school, where I played, you know, 20 competitive nine holes, I think really helped me. And it kind of helped me learn like the process of trying to play good, you know, for someone that re is really competitive, like I am, there's always first tee nerves or jitters or whatever you want to call them. And going through that, you know, 20 times in about a couple months, it kind of makes you used to it. Right. And I had fun playing with the guys and I really wanted to play well and win. And we had a good team and I was the only freshman on the team. So you no, know, I think that was, that was a big part of it. And then just, uh, like I said, I used to, when I was 12, I really liked baseball and basketball more. And by the time I was in high school, I realized that I was getting worse compared to everybody else at baseball and basketball. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was getting better at golf. So that kind of spurred me on to just practice and play more. And so I did. And I ended up getting better just by wanting to do it more and enjoying it more. I want to dig in a little bit more to that learning environment at Virginia Country Club with Jamie, with our clients. We talk a lot about the importance of having proximal role models, the people that you're around that are probably a little further down the road than you are, but that you can learn a lot from. For us, that's guys that are around here, younger kids that are around here that see Jordan, and it feels like while he's accomplished so much, it feels a little bit more maybe possible. And I, I read a quote from you where you said something really, really similar, being around all those guys that were playing on the PGA Tour made it easier for you to see uh, that your goal is possible and maybe even probable. Is there a specific person from that group that you tried to emulate or some traits that you identified from a young age that you were consciously kind of working to develop? Yeah. Well, first of all, there were a lot of people at uh, Virginia Country Club that really helped my evolution of golf. So Jamie Mulligan, obviously, I still work with him. He's been my swing coach 
for a long time and my golf coach for a long time. And knowing that he had taken some tour players like um, John Merrick and Peter Tomasulo and John Mallinger from basically high school to the PGA Tour or college to the PGA Tour was really big for me being kind of, uh, I'd say I'm pretty analytical about things as far as I expected that if I listened to what Jamie said, that I would get better and have a chance to play on the PGA Tour or play on the PGA Tour, as silly as that sounds. I figured he had done it before. So, I mean, if I just listen to his kind of uh, tutoring and his mentorship, then I'll make it, uh, which was kind of a calming, interesting, as, as silly as it sounds today, I really believed it. Um, and then being around guys like John Cook, who was at Virginia Country Club all the time, and like I said, Mallinger and Merrick and Thomas Sulo, I just got to see a lot of really high-quality golf from a young age, and, and then they were really nice to me probably once I started to drive about 16, 17, 18 years old and I'd play with them, you know, four five, six times a year, maybe. And it's just, it's so different to see golf at that high level when you're only 14, 15, 16. And I know I kind of knew even before I got to college, like what the hours they put in, what it looked like to hit it, um, you know, as good as they did. And actually realizing that they don't hit it as good as you think they hit it. And like the PJ tour felt like a reachable place for me to go even around 16, 17, 18 years old with that, with that combination that I just talked about. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player. And that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. I want to dig a little bit deeper into that that developmental period of time where you started to specialize into golf and we as coaches were advising some of the best players in the world but we're also advising those that are aspirational at that same kind of age range of 10 to 15 and you can't separate the advice you're giving the players from also coaching the parents up on what best practices are and as you look back on it are you able to identify any factors that distinguish how your parents supported your improvement during that time especially the lofty expectations that you had to deal with based on the successes as they started to come through kind of late junior years high school years and then into your first couple of years of college well my parents were always very supportive in junior golf and in high school golf anytime i wanted to go to the golf course before i could drive they would drive me to the golf course whenever possible even though both of them worked and uh my grandpa was a member at Virginia. And so he always enabled it, enabled me to be able to go there and, and practice uh, and play when I was growing up. So I had a great place to practice and play. And, um, you know, my parents were just very supportive whenever I, I wanted to do anything as far as golf goes, which as you know, is it takes up a lot of time and it's very expensive. So they sacrificed to make sure that I had all the opportunities possible to pursue my goals and that's always been the case. And, uh, I have a feeling that will always be the case. <laughs> and so I can't, um, you know, thank them enough for enabling me to do it. But I'd say as I got older and as I took more of an interest, my dad actually 
took his uh, foot off the gas as far as trying to pump me up to go practice or play, mm-hmm. or even as far as his, because my dad is a good player. He's probably a plus one for a long time and um, didn't play in college, but has won a bunch of club championships and, and stuff like that. So he knew a lot about golf and a lot about tournament golf and he loves it. So he taught me a lot when I was younger. And as I got older, whether it's because my personality changed and I was less willing to accept what he had to say, or he was cognizant enough to realize that I had other people teaching me, he kind of turned more into dad and less into telling me what to do as far as my golf goes. And, you know, I think looking back, that was the right move, but a hard move probably on his part. Let's move forward a little bit to you know past junior golf and to the success that you had as an AM and college player where you won, I, I think, pretty much every award that you can win in college golf and, and were ranked number one on Wagger for uh, 55 weeks before turning pro. What factors do you think distinguish you the most from your peers during that time? Because you, you spoke of just early in high school career, it, there wasn't a lot of differentiation, but then in a short period of time, you'd accomplished what... Uh, a lot of those players would like to have accomplished. Is there anything that stands out as being a big differentiator for you during that? Or other than that, you just got better. I definitely got better. I definitely started to hit it farther. I qualified for the U S amateur at Southern Hills after my junior, after my junior year in high school. And I went there and shot in the eighties and had absolutely no chance of playing (laughs) the golf course. It was still to this day. When I think about golf out of tech golf course, it was just impossible. There was nothing I could do. And then the uh, the opposite golf course that we played qualifying on was like 7,500 yards or something. And I, I mean, it was, it was way too hard. And, and, and my grandpa always, like I said, I already referenced him once, but he's always got something smart ass to say. And, and he basically, <laughs> he basically just was like, we walked off the golf course in Tulsa and he goes, you have to get so much better. He just was like <laughs> laughing at me. He's, he's just laughing. Like you just, He's like, I, he's like, I don't even know what to say, but like, you are just not good enough to play with any of those guys out there. And so, you know, that was a wake up call. And then the next year I went and, um, you know, I made it all the way to the semis and ended up losing to Peter Uline at Chambers Bay and, um, in the semifinals. And, you know, my grandpa said, I thought we were going to be out of here after two days, but you know, I, I ran out of clothes like three days ago. Um, <laughs> rips so, the doesn't he? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. He doesn't care. But, um, I'd say finishing in the semis at that U S amateur kind of gave me a lot of confidence going into college. So when I rolled into college a few weeks later, I really felt comfortable and confident that, um, you know, my game was good enough. And then I, uh, I played really poorly in my first event. And I only finished like 20. And I thought to myself, you know, these college events aren't tougher than any of the AJGA invitationals that I played. Mm-hmm. And so that really gave me some confidence. And then I finished fourth and then in my next one. And then I won. And then I lost in a playoff. And then I won again. So like after that, it was like these college events feel like nothing, which I don't know if they, they really were. I was just playing really well, but I started hitting it farther and. I really believed in the process that I was doing with Jamie. I never have worried much about my golf swing. So I was just out there playing and I saw the shots and I felt confident in my ability to hit the shots. And I kind of had the mentality of, you know, these college events aren't that big a deal. They're actually easier than the AJGA invitational. And so I was able to really play well. You said there that you, you weren't, you've never worried too much about your golf swing. And I'd love to hear you expand a little bit of that. Can you give us a little bit of a, 
uh, maybe view inside what a session with you and Jamie typically would look like on an off week where you're not playing at an event? Sure. It's changed a lot over time. And I'd say there was definitely a time where we worked on technique more and, 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 and thought about it more, but never as much as what I heard other people would, um, worry about it or think about it. And I'd say now, uh, currently, uh, a range session, we usually have one or two keys and that can change a little bit, but I have a tendency to stand the golf club up, kind of raise my hands up through impact on the downswing. And I think that's to trap the ball and get that strike that I look for. I really like, a like really compressing the golf ball. And so I'm always trying to kind of flatten the club out and lower my hands a little bit without going into the ground. So that's what we've been working on for at least over a year now as kind of like a, not really a fix, but like a, like a feel that we can always work on that hard, that never really gets taken too far, if that makes sense. And, um, we work on some other stuff, but, but it changes from time to time. And a lot of it is hitting shots and, uh, it sounds silly, but a lot of it's just making sure my alignment's good. And sometimes I get a little closed. Uh, so just making sure I'm on my alignment and, and, you know, I keep the, try and keep the club flat and really try and work on good rhythm and feel like I, I have the strike I want and it's going where I'm looking. And it, it's, uh, I always feel and have felt for a long time, like I can hit the draw almost any time. So it doesn't matter what's going on. If you say like, Patrick, I need you to hit a trap draw. I can always hit it. <laughs> so in my practices, a lot of the time we work on hitting fades just because that kind of neutralizes every, all my tendencies. I just want to reiterate a point that you made there that I think is uh, important for our listeners to hear again, the fact that you've got one or two things that you've been working on for a year. And I think that's something common that we hear with a lot of the best players that we talk to. There's not jumping around to a bunch of different concepts. There's a real consistent message that you're kind of trying to follow through on over a long period of time. What percentage of practice of that practice time would you say is in that form mode where you're, you're working specifically towards some technical change? And then what percentage of it is that just hitting shots that you're talking about it? And maybe as a, as an add on to that, what percentage of it is then just taken to the golf course? A lot more is hitting shots in my practice. And I notice that I get the most out of my practice that way. In general, I don't get a lot out of hitting a lot of golf balls. My body doesn't feel as good when I hit a lot of golf balls. And then I start thinking more when I hit a lot of golf balls. So a lot of times, even my practice will be warm up to play. And I think my routine, mostly in an off week or in some off time, is to practice at the beginning of the off time or off week. Uh, after I take some time off, depending on how long my break is. And then after I've practiced and I have, you know, some good feel going again, then I'll play going into my tournaments. And so I don't spend a lot of time on the range unless it's hitting certain shots or, or to certain numbers as far as working on technique goes before, before a tournament. In general, I'm playing and I like to play for something. I like to be competitive, whether it be with some guys at the club who are, you know, 10, 12 handicaps or even more, or whether it's, you know, a game with some local pros, um, or good amateur players, which Jamie has, you know, a lot of guys at the club that are in college or high school that are trying to be really good players. So those games are fun too. Yeah. Great advice. I want to jump back real quick to 
the big decision, and that decision was to leave college early and turn professional. Do you recall what those tipping points were that helped confirm in your mind that you were ready to take that big step? Yeah. So I definitely graduating high school, I thought to myself, I will definitely go to four years of college. And it never really was a, never really was a thought of turning pro early. And then after playing so well my freshman year, I got into some tour events. I ended up qualifying for the U.S. Open. I finished 21st at the U.S. Open. And then I went to Travelers and finished around 20th there. And then I went to Tigers Tournament and finished around 20th there. And then I played the Canadian Open a few weeks later and finished 9th. And I won the SoCal Amateur. And I was... You kept winning. I made it to the... (laughs) Yeah, I made it to the finals of the Western Am and the finals of the U.S. Am all that summer. And so kind of looked around and I don't want to say I wasn't motivated, but I wasn't really excited to go play college events again after that. It's just such a different experience playing on tour in front of people on these championship golf courses and the biggest events. And so I was into the masters and I felt like I had to go back to play the masters, which in hindsight was probably a mistake, Hmm. but I would never say that. Like there wasn't really a wrong decision, but I could have, I think I could have definitely turned pro after my uh, freshman after that summer and gone to Q school. Uh, but I didn't, and it was, it all worked out fine. And I I played the masters and I was low am there. And then I turned pro after the U S open because I had an amateur exemption into the U S open. And, you know, I honestly, I never even worried about the possibility of turning pro and not making it because I had played all those tour events that I knew I was good enough to play out on tour. Mm -hmm. And I knew that my game was good enough. And I wasn't scared of going out on tour. It was just the matter of doing it. So we're speaking about all those winning experiences that you had. And it it reminds me of a quote that I wrote down as we were doing some research that said, if I'm playing a tournament, then I was going to prep as best I could to win that tournament. Winning is just a result of the process. And I also read another piece where you refer to sticking to your system on tournament week. So without revealing any you know, trade secrets, things that you want to keep between you and Jamie. I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, what that system looks like on tournament week, uh, as far as what y'all's objectives are on that Monday through Wednesday that might, you know, tip the scales more heavily in the direction towards those good outcomes that you've, you've obviously had a ton of in the last few years. Right. Well, one of the things that's I think easy for everyone to forget and definitely has been something that I've tried to make one of the main focuses of tournament weeks is to make sure I'm rested enough by the time the turn by the time Thursday rolls around. And I think too often people are thinking, Oh, it's Tuesday afternoon. I need to go putt for two hours. So my, you know, my putting's ready on Thursday, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the recipe for success. At least it's not for me. So I, when I step on the tee on Thursday, I want to feel so rested and ready to, to go that I have all my mental energy and physical energy to perform when I need to perform because tournaments are more of a marathon than they are of a sprint. And so if something's a little off, you know, to start, I have a feeling that it'll round in, it'll, it'll round into form. I don't need to be, you know, um, already tired by the time Thursday rolls around. So my prep week, the week before is where I feel like I get a lot of my work done as far as what I'm going to need for the next week's tournament. And the tournament week is more about learning the golf course, feeling comfortable on the golf course and having good rhythm and, and and timing and making sure that, you know, I feel rested and ready to play. And I think that's something that everybody can, can do a little better at. And I know when I first turned pro, 
I thought of it much differently than I do now. And I felt like I was tired by the time the weekend rolled around, like it had already been a long week. So that's definitely been a main focus of mine for, for a while now. You can clearly probably tell from the questions that we ask, we're scratching our own itch here as kind of curious fans of great golf and fans of yours and also coaches that are charged with advising hopefully the next generation of great players. And one of the questions that we get asked often is, well, I get myself into position to win, but how do I close the door? How do I actually find myself kind of standing in first place at the end and raising that trophy? And one situation I want to speak specifically to, if it's okay with you, or you can speak in generalities is the 2017 Shriners when you were faced with uh, the four iron from the right rough had to keep it under the tree and cut it away from the water that was on the left and it seemed like it had a hanging lie as well where the ball was above your feet which was stacking the deck in favor of it missing left but you summoned the courage I guess and and also found the confidence that you could execute that shot in that situation can you speak specifically to that or maybe create some sort of general hey here's what I tell myself in those situations where I'm trying to hit the important shot when it counts sure well first of all it had been a long week and it, <laughs> the, the, the sun was the sun was going down and i was tired and i wanted to get out of there i didn't want to come back the next morning <laughs> i had been i had been in china i had been in china the week before so i i was feeling uh like i wanted to finish this thing but uh in all seriousness you know in general i don't like laying up and i feel like i can hit most of the shots that I need to hit. Yeah. I saw the shot when I first got up there and, um, I thought that if I could get it up near the green, that was my best chance at making par because the wind was coming in off the left pretty hard to a left pin mm -hmm. and with water left. So I didn't feel like if I laid it up, I had a good chance of making par, but I felt like if I was able to pull that shot off from there and got it up there near the green, that I could make a par. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, that's, that was kind of my, my, my rationale, my thinking behind it. And I've always been one to kind of play to win opposed to like playing scare. And so sometimes that works out really well and sometimes it doesn't. But, um, unfortunately in that situation, I hit a really good shot, really great shot from there and was able to get it up and down and, and it worked out well. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. So that win along with the, the win at Memorial have obviously launched you and, and a lot of other, you know, high finishes have launched you in the top 10 in the world. And you're playing with other top players each week based on that ranking, basically the, the 1% of the top 1% of golfers in the world. And I'm sure that you've used that opportunity to learn a few things and, and evolve your game or your approach to winning. What characteristics do you feel distinguish that very top 1%? And is there anything in specific that you've tried to develop new to your game in the last year or so based on those experiences with the best of the best? It's an interesting, that's an interesting question. And I think it's, it's different for everybody. I think by the time the guys get to the top 10 in the world, you see a certain level of confidence that other guys don't have, whether that be, you know, their feet, they feel like, you know, it almost feels like no matter what happens when they step on the first tee, 
no matter what happens that day, they know they're going to shoot in the 60s. Whether they do or not is a different thing, but that quiet confidence or even for some guys that the louder confidence is definitely apparent in the top 10 and even, you know, really, really great players, maybe in the top 50. And I don't know if that's the chicken or the egg thing. You have a bunch of good experiences and then you become confident or you have that confident confidence. And then, and then over time, as you play well, it, it brings it out more, but it's a combination of, uh, uh, of one of the, one of the two. And I'm not sure exactly what that is. But then there's something else about those guys, and they definitely take it more serious, I would say. And they prep expecting to play well, expecting to win, opposed to they, as opposed to showing up to a tournament saying, "Well, I hope this week's my week," you know, which which I see from from other guys who usually aren't as uh, highly ranked. Yeah, looking through my lens, it's certainly a combination of both of them. It's a, bit, a chicken and a bit of the egg. It's the experience of, hey, I've seen myself had some, have some success and there's a certainty to that, but it's also cultivated in kind of a self-talk. So the question I have coming out of the statement that I'm making is, are there a, a number of things or maybe one thing you tell yourself to help you level up on an already high level of confidence? Yeah, I'd say. I can do it through my practice. So if I practice the right way and I, and I prep the right way and I do all my workouts and rest appropriately, I, there's a quiet feeling inside of I'm totally prepared and ready for this week. And that goes a long way, I think. Yeah. And then there's another mentality as far as no matter what happens out there, whether I get a good break or a bad break, I birdie the first five or I bogey the first three, I'm good enough to handle it. Right. So whether I get a really, really bad lie or, you know, I hit in the spot I'm not supposed to, or someone yells in my backswing or whatever it is, the thought of I'm prepared and I'm good enough to handle it no matter what happens has helped me a lot and goes a long way. And I noticed that the better the weeks that I do well, or, or the weeks I do better than some others, it's usually not. I didn't hit it in any divots mm-hmm. or I didn't make any <laughs> bogeys. It's usually, it's usually, when I did hit it in a divot or I did make a silly mistake, I thought to myself, I got this, you know, like I'm, I'm totally in control uncomfortable and confident opposed to, Oh, here we go again. I hit in a divot. There's no way I couldn't make a bogey. You know, maybe you hit it up there in a bunker and, and make it right. And then, then you can totally turn the momentum. So the good weeks tend to have more of that or maybe even one or two instances of that opposed to the the quitters mentality. Yeah, I understand completely. Uh, the social media goes kind of berserk when JT at the end of his years posts his uh, goals and checklists from the previous year and kind of reestablishes targets. Uh, how much of a goal setter are you? Do you look at stats to inform targets of attention? Or maybe a bigger question to ask is what is the mission map? What are your objectives for 2020? I'd say my object- objectives aren't so detailed. But having lofty goals is is something that I can't stress enough. And being realistic about it is important, but actually I don't think as important as expecting greatness out of yourself and setting those lofty goals. Mm-hmm. So if you set really inspiring goals, like, you know, I'd like to win not just a major in my career, but I'd like to win a major every year for, you know, the rest of my career. Or I'd like to win multiple majors multiple times, you know, multiple majors in a year, multiple times. Mm-hmm. That's the type of mentality that people have that, that ultimately win majors. The people that think, you know, I'm going to win a major 
I hope I win the Masters once in my life. They usually don't win the Masters. Like that, that's not the mentality that helps you win the win. <laughs> no, no, it's not. So I have I have very lofty goals, but I, I wouldn't say I haven't really seen any of JT's goals. Uh, it sounds like they're fairly specific. I don't have necessarily those specific goals, but my plan is to be number one in the world and win multiple majors and show up to every week ready to win. And the way to accomplish that for me is doing all my prep the right way and listening to the people around me and surrounding myself with good people, trying to be in a good mood more of the time, which is something that I work on all the time, sometimes with, with different results, but you know, that uh, all that helps. And so trying to be cognizant of what's going on and what makes you play well, I think it's, it is important and being realistic about what makes you play well. You know, I always tell a story about people and it sounds silly, but how often will I run into somebody where they say, you know, if I eat chicken the day before I play, I play really well the next day. You know, you've heard somebody, <laughs> everyone's got something like that, right? Right. Well, it's not even superstition, but it's like they've got something that they do that helps them play well, or they think it helps them play well. It could be superstition. It could be real. But then you go out to the restaurant and they're eating spaghetti the night before the first round. Yeah. And you're like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, it doesn't make any sense. You know, you're resting so, to it. Right. So, so that I think is, is something that everyone can do and figuring out that recipe is sometimes difficult, but once you figure it out, sticking to it and, and trying to improve it just a little bit is kind of the road I'm on. So I'm just trying to find little tweaks everywhere to try and give myself the best advantage as possible. You spoke to that expectation that you have week in and week out and that, that the rest of the top players have, that they're going to win every week. Would you point to that as a kind of source for the consistency that you've had? Because I was looking at, and doing the research, looking at kind of the, the schedule of events, and one of the things that pops up is that you never miss a cut. You, you've got you've missed four cuts since you've come back since an injury, and one of them was a team event, which you can blame on on your partner for that <laughs> missed cut. But is that something that you would point to, or is there another? Because this is another case of Cameron and I just scratching our own itch. Is we have players that would love to have that that small of a range in outcomes to where the worst weeks are when I have a T forty, and the rest of the weeks I'm, I'm in contention, and obviously. The ability is is part of that, but I'm curious if, if you point to to something else that's contributed towards that that level of consistency. Well, you guys asked about stats earlier, and I didn't really touch on it, but my stats are pretty consistent as far as the stats go. And the key to having consistently good stats is figuring out what your weaknesses are, whether you know that or whether by looking at the stats, which I think everybody kind of has tried to marry the two because sometimes stats can be a little misleading if they're in small numbers. And so trying to pick out your weaknesses, I really feel like, and having the most well-rounded game you can is the key to having a lot of consistency. And not only that, but like I said, prepping the same way and not taking a week for granted, you know, showing up every week with the intention to win opposed to, ah, I haven't played in a little while. I'll just show up to this tournament. Hopefully I'll be ready by, you know, the tournament two two tournaments from now, mm-hmm. which sometimes I hear from guys, you know, I haven't been playing great. I'm going to play my well, play my way into form. I don't know if I buy that. Like for me, at least I want to show up to the event feeling like my game's good. I've worked on all the things I need to work on. 
and I'm ready to go kick everyone's ass. Like that's what I'm striving for. So I think the more you can put yourself in that mindset, the the more consistent results you'll. We've got a few quick hits. If you wouldn't mind questions that you can, it might be a yes, no, it might be a simple answer, or you can elaborate if you feel like it's necessary. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Let's uh, leap off with the first one. Fair or unfair as it may be, if you had to pick just one shot that defines you as a player, which is it and why? I'd say just a, a high draw probably off the tee. I tend to try and hit driver a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I feel comfortable on a golf course that really suits that. I'll get up and hit it, you know, 10, 12 times around. Um, and I'll try and fit it into the smallest spot. So just a mostly, mostly a draw. Like I said, I feel like I can hit a draw with any club anytime. Who's your favorite practice round partner or who's your favorite four ball? If you guys are wrapping up your work on the range and heading to the first tee that's for a practice round, who are you looking for to pair up with? I try to pair up with the best players possible. I feel like I can always learn something from someone. I've learned from JT. I've learned from Jordan, learned from Tiger, you know, learned from all those guys. So anytime I feel like I can steal something from somebody, I will. And uh, I think that's uh, something everyone can do. I really enjoyed playing with Xander. So last week in, in, in the yeah. President's Cup. So we, maybe we he's turning into my favorite, my favorite four ball partner. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, we may play a practice round this week uh, at Tournament of Champions. He won last year here. So maybe I can steal something from him too. Yeah. And when he goes to Vegas, he needs to play practice rounds with you because you've got that place figured out for sure. <laughs> right. Next, next one, you get done with a round or a tournament and you scan the leaderboard. Who do you take great pleasure in seeing that you've beaten? Uh, no one is higher than anybody else. So <laughs> I just like, I, I like beating everybody. Um, I don't, I don't give anyone, you know, I, I try not to worry about beating anyone more than anybody else, but I like beating everyone equally. And, and I really thoroughly enjoy that. <laughs> give me your view on swing thoughts. We have a lot of conversations with players where we debate the merits of, well, should I have a swing thought? Should there be one swing thought? You know, is there a percentage of rounds that you can think of that you've played completely void of swing thoughts throughout your career? I'd say most of my good rounds, I have maybe one yeah. and it could be as, it could be as simple as a little more time at the top or feel connected with the club on the way through or you know, any, any variation of that. But I noticed that most of the time I play really well. I have just one, one little thought and it's usually a feel thought it's usually not a club placement thought so you know and usually it's related to timing it's some feel that gives me better timing and so finding that and then sticking to it i think is is helpful but 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 it can change i don't mean sticking to it like sticking to it week to week but sticking to it day to day you know and having that little thought and and having it help you all day can be really helpful Last one, the advice that we give sometimes is about breaking barriers and setting personal bests. So the question is when you've got a low round going, maybe it's a personal best round and maybe it's not recently, but back in the day when uh, shooting 65 was something you hadn't done before rather than being uh, fairly routine these days, what's the mindset when you've got that low round going? Usually when I have that low round going, everything's feeling pretty good and I've never had a difficult time like keeping the momentum and keep making birdies. Hmm. But I think you have to step up on the first tee and think to yourself, Hey man, if I birdie the first three holes, like it's on, I might shoot in the fifties today. Mm -hmm. Like I think a lot of that mentality happens before you tee it up. It doesn't happen out on the golf course. Cause if you go out on a golf course and you think, man, this golf course really hard. 
I, if I shoot 68 today, it's great, you know, <laughs> but then you birdie the first, you know, four holes or something, or you make an Eagle or you make a shot from the fairway on 12 and you find yourself six under, mm-hmm. you've already kind of anchored yourself to 68 when you could take that and blow the field away and shoot eight, nine under that day. That's good. So I think, I think it kind of like, it's a mentality before you even tee up that, you know, if I get rolling, I could shoot nothing. Beautiful. That's even more gold than you've, you've already given us a bunch of it. Cameron and I are sitting here with smiles at every uh, answer that you give, knowing that this is really relevant to the listeners. And we're really thankful for, you know, just your generosity and, and openness to share this and, and obviously with your time as well. So we'll say thanks and we'll, we'll let you get back to prep. We'll be cheering for you in Hawaii. And yeah, thanks very much for, for being with us, Patrick. Well, thanks guys. I love what you do. So keep doing it. And I appreciate you having me on. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. Your Edge.